Well, it's good to be with you, and we're going to be starting this morning a new series in the book of First John and going chapter by chapter uh, through that powerful book. And the title made me think about different words that we have in our language, certain words that you hear. And tell me if you're like me in this, maybe, or maybe I'm just weird. Certain words that you hear that just kind of rub you the wrong way. Do you have any word that you hear this particular word and when you hear it, it kind of makes you cringe? Or am I the only one like that? My particular word is the word moist. (laughs) It's a terrible word. Let's be honest here. If we can vote and have that eliminated from the English language, when somebody talks about something being moist, I'm like, ooh, it kind of gives me a shiver. In fact, I don't like even saying it in this platform do you, do you have, in fact, well, just since we're the friendliest church, take a second and tell the person near you a word that you really bugs you, a word that, that you don't like to hear. Think of a word and share with someone. Are there... Are there any that we're willing to share here? What are some words? Anybody willing, anybody willing to share a word that bothers them? Puss. Yeah, that's a bad word. How, someone earlier shared the word squat. Yeah, that's a bad one. What's, what's another one? Spew. Yeah. There's cert, certain words that when you hear them, it just kind of gives you that shiver to your spine. But then on the alternate side of that... There's certain words that you hear that are captivating, certain words that you're drawn to. You hear that word, and for me, and part of the reason we're titling this series that, is the word radiant. When you hear that word, there's something that draws you to it. And I was thinking it's usually associated with a bride, but I was thinking when, you're, when I was coming in, someone shared, oh yeah, do you remember in the story Charlotte's Web? You remember what the, the, the last word that Charlotte put in the web to save Wilbur's life was that word, radiant. It's a compelling word, usually associated with a bride. I'll never forget. We can have a picture there on the screen. I'll never forget Adrian coming down the aisle and just watching her. And the word radiant couldn't be a better descriptor of her on that, that wedding day. I don't know who looks happier, though, her or her dad. <laughs> But, but radiant is a, is, a, is a captivating word, usually attached to a bride. By definition, the word radiant means sending out light, shining or glowing brightly. Sending out light, shining or glowing brightly. And really, it's fascinating that in Ephesians 5.27, that's the word that's used, at least in the NIV, NIV to describe the church. As Christ's radiant bride, and the ESV described as having splendor, either way, a powerful word, radiant, the idea of sending out light or shining or glowing brightly. If that's what we're designed to be as the church, I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for anything less. I don't want to be like, oh, they're kind of more of a, a dull glow, you know? They're more of a, a flicker. Like, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's not what you just have, want to have described of you as the church, you yourself individually as the flicker, 
but want to be radiant, radiant. When you think about how many times we talk about somebody and like so a certain glow about them, we're like, man, they're just, just a radiant person. Usually that's attached to the reality that I'm going to point to this morning is Christ shining through them. That's the light. That's the light that reflects through somebody. That's what, when, when there's somebody that you're like, man, I can't put a finger on it. Why they're so attractive to me. Typically pointing to the light of Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning in our text, 1 John 1. We're going to be talking about the light that we're designed to radiate. Let me pray for us before we do that. God, I thank you this morning for this chance to be together and already having just a sweet time of, of worship and prayer and celebrating your goodness and faithfulness in our life. God, we ask now that you'd teach us in this text, that you'd stretch us, that we would be the church that you describe in Ephesians, the radiant bride, both collectively and individually. You can only do that through the power of your spirit working in and through us. So we invite you here now to teach us that we want to be students. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you don't mind turning with me, it's a lot easier if we're looking at the same text together to 1 John, not to be confused with John. My daughter this week is like, man, there's a lot of Johns in the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're in 1 John verse one, or chapter 1, starting in verse 1, talking about the light. First section here I titled it, Can't Deny It, says this, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our, our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. Pause there. I love the book called The Case for Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with this book by Lee Strobel. Some years back, I had an opportunity of working with Lee when I was on staff at Willow Creek Community Church. But interesting background, he was the former legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And he went on this task slash adventure of trying to disprove the claims of Scripture it's a fascinating story because he was really intent on this. He's like, I'm, I'm fed up with this. I'm done with all these Christ followers. I'm going to debunk their belief system from a perspective of, a, 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 of, a, um, of someone that was educated, somebody that, that knew kind of how to gather facts. And so as the, the writer in the Tribune, he went on this adventure. And the fascinating thing in his story is the deeper he dug the more he realized, wait a second, there's validity to this. There, there's truth behind this. I can't debunk something that's true. And the case for Christ is fascinating because it's his journey from atheism to faith because ultimately the more he dug in, the more he realized the truth in Christ's claims and it ultimately embraced Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. It's a powerful testimony of someone trying to disprove something and coming to a, a, the opposite conclusion. I think about this first section in 1 John and you think about it real, real similar to that idea. John is trying to make sure that his audience is certain 
about who Jesus Christ is, a full case for Christ, if you will. We don't know exactly who his audience was, but this was written in the first hundred years. We know that because of lifespans after Christ was here. So this was John, one of Jesus' disciples, a close personal uh, friend of his. And he's writing an account of his life. We don't know exactly who his audience was other than the fact that it typically points to it being other believers. So he starts by presenting three certainties of Jesus Christ. We can unpack those briefly from this section. The first one is that he's unchanging. He's unchanging. The text says, that which was from the beginning. Who's that referring to? None other than Jesus Christ there, the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's fascinating if you actually ponder this thought is that he never had a start never has a finish. It's hard for our brains to wrap themselves around that idea. Everything that we know has a beginning, has an end, but in this case, not Jesus Christ. So whether you believe in a old earth or a young earth, either way, he was at the beginning. He was at the start of it because he always was. I was listening to a message by J. Vernon McGee this week. Any of the older folks here recognize that, that name? He's a great voice. He was preaching. It was interesting. He's talking about this topic of old earth or young earth. I don't know if you're familiar with this debate. It becomes a real divisive thing, unfortunately, whether or not the earth is millions of years old or whether it's thousands of years old. And really, it's a debate. Now, it was interesting to hear from his perspective later in his years. He said, listen, I've read books, if I stack them, they would go to the ceiling on this topic, and guess what I've concluded? We have no idea. We weren't there. And basically saying it's, a, it's kind of a mute point, but either way, whatever way that you want to uh, place it in your mind, whether you need it to be a few million years old or you need it to be uh, 10,000 years old, the point being here, that which was from the beginning Jesus Christ was there, unchanging. He's pointing out to the audience that this is the same God that you've been following and worshiping. The great I am is still the same. He's unchanging. He's also historical. Let me explain what I mean by that. Often in this section, you see that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen later on, we uh, testify to the idea multiple times. It wasn't just one person that knew or knew of Jesus Christ. He's not just a, a figment of our imagination. He's an historic character. There's really very little talk of him not ever existing. It's more of the question of who he was, right? So an historical character, and in this case, from John's personal perspective, so unchanging historical, and the third one, personal. John literally knew him. What, is, what does he say in the text there? He says, I heard him, I've seen him, I've gazed upon him or looked upon him, I've touched him. This wasn't just a, a figment of his imaginations, not a mystical thing, but he actually knew him through his natural senses, how we typically know things by things we've seen or touched or heard. That's how John knew him. So he's pointing, he's making a seal-proof case that, listen, this isn't just somebody I've heard of. This is somebody that I personally knew. I think it's interesting still a couple thousand years later is still the most 
compelling case that we can make for Christ is our own personal experience with him, right? It's hard to debate with somebody when you're like, listen, I don't know what to tell you. You can argue all this stuff back and forth, but I know him personally. I've encountered Christ. I've, my path was headed this direction and it collided. You can't debate with me about my personal story. My question for us here this morning is, do you have that story? Do you have that encounter? Can you look back in your days and say, yes, this is when my life collided with him. And this is where I have a personal interaction with Christ. I love in Hebrews 1, 1, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These last days, he spoke to us by his son. It's interesting. He describes Jesus as the word of life. It's actually the words of God speaking to us through Jesus Christ. Have you encountered him? Think of my story in my high school years when I first really finally bent a knee to his leadership in in my life. It was like a buildup of pressure where you could only resist it for so long. You kept trying to fight. He kept trying to fight it. Then you're like, All right, I submit, I acknowledge that you are who you claim to be. And what that means is things have to change in my life. It's a personal thing. If you've had it, you can't deny it. You also, we're going to see in this next section, verse 3, if you've had it, you can't stay silent about it either. It says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Think about all the silly things we get pretty excited about. A couple months ago, or I guess probably about a a month ago, Ephraim took me over to lunch at Paul Martin's. I don't know if you've been to Paul Martin's, but when someone invites to treat you to lunch at Paul Martin's, you usually say yes to that. And so we went there and I was kind of working through the menu and he, I was just asking him for any suggestions. And he says, I think you might actually really like their burger. See a picture of that there. And, and, and I said, you know, I, I'm kind of a sucker for a bacon burger and I, I skipped the cheese because of dairy issues. But I'm like, Let, let's try this. Let's try this out. This burger was redonkulous. Like it was, it was so good. It, I was reading this descriptions. It was grass fed beef and like all this to do and salt. I don't know what all they'd done to it, but whatever they did, they did it well. Like this burger, I've told more people about, oh, you got to try a burger. Paul Martin's are fantastic. And they have some, uh, some afternoon special where they're actually a little cheaper and blah, blah, blah. And I've talked about this stupid burger now. <laughs> For weeks, and now you're just like, yeah, I'm going there for lunch. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you think about it, the silly things, what is it in your life, the silly things that you get really excited to share with people about, right? Get pretty excited. You're like, man, I can't wait to tell so-and-so this, fill in the blank, what it is for you, for me, a burger. But in this case, the descriptor that we see here, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim, It's a natural progression. Once you've seen it, once you've heard it, the natural progression is that you proclaim it. You speak to others about it. You can't stay silent about it. It's interesting to think about 
what more could we talk about that has greater end results of joy as being the outcome? I would propose that there's not much in life or I'd even propose anything in life that's more satisfying than seeing somebody come into a saving relationship. What does it describe? To go to have the fellowship that you have with God. Does it be like, yes, see that and the transformation that that imposes on somebody's life when they've embraced Christ. My very best friend, Joe uh, Basil, we have a picture of him here. I've been friends since we were 15. He's got a lot more hair than me. But, uh, but uh, I remember at age 15 when I first met him, he was a rapper and not like a gum rapper, but a rapper. He was selling guns. That was bad. Sorry, guys. Uh, selling guns. Just a, I mean, just a mess. Mixed up with drugs and women and divorced by age 17. Like just a, just a, a, a mess. And just so powerful to see somebody's life completely transformed, to see God take somebody and do a 180 degree turn where he's got belief tattooed on one arm and the cross on the other, redeemed across his back. You're like, man, the transformation, there's nothing more rewarding than that. That's why it says we do this. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete can't not talk about it. I can't help it. I can't help but speak of what I've experienced. Acts 4.20, we see the account of Peter and John are being told this is the beginning of the church. They're being told to be silent about it. You can't keep talking about it. They're told and warned and cautioned. And I love their response. They say, for we cannot, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, saying we can't help it. We can't not speak about it. I can't help but sharing about it because when it's happened to you, you have to tell others. That's the invitation. That's what Adrian was up here praying over is that natural progression. And here's how it works. It's a cyclical thing. You first encounter Christ. Guys, if you look on the back of your bulletin, that word's there as one of our core values. And you first encounter Christ, then you're equipped in understanding and understanding who he is, how his life relates to you, how he's wired up, your unique giftings, all that. You There's an equip piece. And then for it to go full circle, then there's also the extend piece where you're like, man, I can't keep this. I have to give it to someone else. And then that person, it keeps going full circle. Then they encounter Christ. Then they're equipped in Christ. Then they extend Christ. And it's a beautiful design that God's put into place. My question for us is, are we getting a cog in that wheel? Are we the cog in that wheel? Where have we stopped it? Are we gotten stuck in the equip piece? Where have we gotten stuck in that wheel? Needs to go full circle. Can't stay silent about it. Verse 5 now, we'll see that you can't live without it. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
that section there, the first thing that grabbed my attention is this descriptor of the gospel message, the descriptor of God, if you will. It says God is what? Light. That's a powerful and interesting statement, isn't it? It's fascinating to me that scientists still can't identify what light actually is. Isn't that interesting? After all these years, it's still a debate and still people are really kind of befuddled on what that actually means. What is light? They can point to the things that it, that it emits from, but they have trouble identifying what it is. They're able to define where the, the speed that it can go. But listen, even the, the, the definition, if you just Google search it, this is the definition of light. The natural agent that stimulates sight and makes things visible. Like you're talking about what it does. You're not saying what it is. Like the, the natural agent, what is that? Like, uh, like that makes no sense. It's interesting to me that light after all of these years, you can't, really can't figure out what that is. And it's fascinating in the text that that's what he points. I don't know if it's for uh, making an emphasis whether uh, or how to even make sense out of it, but it points to God being light. The psalmist in Psalm 104 verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty Listen to this, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Interesting to scripture. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light. Or James in James 1.17 describes him as the father of lights. Here describing in our text him as light. Says that there's no darkness at all in him. We may not be able to explain what light is, but there's something at the core of us, if we're honest, that you're drawn to it. You're drawn to the light. You're drawn to the, to, to the presence of God, to his very... Uh, it's interesting. I was thinking about light as it relates to this. What does light actually do? It brings things to the surface, you know? Like you don't see something, then all of a sudden the light goes on and you're like, whoa, now I can see it. And sometimes that's a positive. Sometimes it's a negative. I was thinking about some of the mirrors. Have you been on some of the mirrors that are lined with the lights and you really get a close look at your face and you're like, oh my goodness, that's not so good. You know, like anybody else that do that or am I the only one? And you're like, whoa, when did hair start growing there? You're like, wait, wait a second. Like, why is the, those bumps and spots and all this stuff? Because light has this tendency to reveal stuff. And the same reason we're drawn to it is the same reason we resist it. John three nineteen says, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Works were evil. The reason why more people don't come to the light or don't come to Christ is because they're like, yeah, when I'm around him, when I'm around his glory, when I'm around his purity, his lightness, all of a sudden I'm more aware of my darkness, right? That's the effect that, that God has on people. And that's the truth that it's pointing to here in the text that he's the light, the father of light. Everything is exposed in his presence. Not until people accept both the absolute holiness of God and acknowledge their sin can they embrace the gospel and truly live. 
this idea you have to come into the light to recognize our need for the light. Verse 8, can't pretend we don't need it. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to this. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. It's a powerful section of scripture there. If you think about it, verses 8 through 10, they're talking about people that are really living in denial, basically breaking them into three different categories. There's a decent degree of debate whether this is referring to believers or non-believers, but either way, the antidote is still the same. Three groups that he points to. The first one is that those that ignore the problem altogether. Verse 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Do you get that idea there? Those who say that they have fellowship with God can't be living and walking in the darkness. How often do you talk to somebody, and what does this look like present day? How often do you talk to somebody that's just like, yeah, I'm not really following Christ or living within the boundaries or parameters of, of his will. His, his word isn't really a guide in my, my life. But you know what? God and I were like this. He gets it. He understands me. He knows, and this is when the excuses start rolling, right? He understands how, how I grew up. He, he knows my circumstances. He knows how difficult my husband is. He gets it. He knows that I'm in love with my girlfriend, and that's why I'm sleeping with her, despite the idea that, wait a second, but you're outside of the parameters that he set. You can't say, what does it call that person? It says they're not practicing the truth. You can't be living in the darkness or walking in the darkness and expect that you're walking, that you have fellowship with God. Anything other than I am living with his word as the standard for my life and you're not living in the light, period. It's basically what he's saying. He's not really giving a lot of options there. You're either, you're either in the light or you're not in the light. This doesn't, this doesn't say that we're absent of sin. What I like is that it points to the word walking because walking denotes the fact that this is a consistent pattern. It's just like, no, not that you tripped or stumbled a little bit, but it's saying when you're walking in the light, it points to there's really an absence of struggle there. It's more of a submission to that life. Does that make sense? The idea that it's like, hey, Scripture is full of all kinds of patience and, and grace for those that are fighting the fight and in the battle. But those that have just given in and just like, oh, I'm just walking in the darkness, but that's okay. God and I, we're, we're cool. We're in a good spot. He's saying that person is not living the truth. So that first one, the idea of ignoring the problem altogether. The second one, denying your current state. It says, if we say we have no sin... Truth is not in us. We say that we have no sin. What does that look like today? Do you talk to many people that say, no, I don't have any sin in my life? Uh, not too often. Although about a year ago, I was talking to a guy actually uh, attending here. He's not any longer, but he was explaining to me. He's like, yeah, see, I used to sin a lot, but I don't really sin anymore. I'm like, really? 
how do you do that? I'm like, I'm like, I do a lot, a whole lot. In fact, when you start adding sins of omission and commission, you're like, wait a second, things you're doing that you shouldn't be doing and things that you should be doing that you're not, you're like, what in the world? Who would make the claim that they're not sinning? Some do. But if we're honest in the American church, how often we're known for putting on this kind of posture or this exterior that, yeah, we, we are, now that we're in church, we don't really do that sin thing anymore. And because of that, people from the outside are like, uh, I don't really want to be around that. That's a, they don't even struggle with that anymore. And I'm a mess. Well, here's the truth. I know that we do. I know personally I know collectively, I know from 17 years of of ministry, I'm not the only one struggling. It's not something that we're denying, and the truth is not in us. Instead, I love Psalms 139, where the psalmist invites God to search him and identify any hidden sin, because there's plenty. Bring them to surface. Don't live in denial. Get tired of trying to hide behind being fake and trying to pretend like we have it all together. That person is denying their current state. The third one, as this progresses, in verse 10, is denying your past as well. It says, have not sinned. This is the most bold statement because it's not just saying, since Christ, or, or I, I, I used to not, or I don't sin, but I used to. This is the person that's saying, not only do I not sin now, Never really have. Never really have. You're like, whoa, that's, that's something there. Somebody's saying that. I'm like, you know what? I don't necessarily hear that conversation very often, but here's the, the present equivalent I would propose is the person that says, there's not really a standard out there. I'm fine. I'm not guilty because I'm just doing what, whatever I want. I'm doing what's right in my mind. If it's right for what's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you. That's the person that doesn't even acknowledge that there is a standard, that there is something that qualifies as sin. That's a dangerous place to be. And that's where he confronts that very directly. And he addresses that in, in, ver, in verse 10. And he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's a pretty powerful statement. In other words, you're saying God, him, is a liar. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong in that scenario. And my guess is it's not me. It's him that's right. And that's what he's pointing to. You're making him out to be a liar. One of the two is lying. Verse 9 provides the solution to all three of these quandaries here. It's really the solution, initial solution, and the ongoing one. What does the verse say? We're all familiar with it. If we confess our sins rather than deny them, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just a few, all unrighteousness. You see, this is where it all begins. It, be- it begins with us bending the knee and saying, I confess. What is confessing? It's actually coming in line with what he says. You're saying, I'm wrong. You're right about my condition. What you say that I sin, I agree with you. It's an agreement with what he says. That is confession. I am saying the same thing about my behavior. You are. It has to start there. And then embracing his forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is where it all starts. 
But it's also where it continues. You continue to dip into that well of grace because even though we're freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we still have the presence of sin in our life, right? It's still an ongoing struggle. It's like, man, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was six months ago. Not where I was a year ago. There's layers, if you think of it in terms of an onion, that need to get peeled off. You're getting closer and closer to that soft center because there's layers that have to be peeled off. My same friend Joe uh, was talking about a, a guy in his church that came to Christ in one of the, the services, and he was sharing about it's been fun to watch his transformation because he's a great testimony of those layers gradually coming off. And maybe you have somebody in your life that you kind of get a kick out of watching that progression where you're like, woo, there's still some rough edges there. But uh, th- this particular gentleman, he's like, yeah, we were having this leaders gathering, and the guy had the chance to talk about an upcoming men's ab- event. And he says, and he says, listen, the, we need to make sure that effing everybody is there. <laughs> and, and, and we're like, and there was like this silence that went through the entire room because they, they knew his heart and there's a transformation that was happening inside of him. But obviously there's still a few layers. And he's like, but you don't understand. Pat used to say that every third word. Now he's just saving it for men's events. You know, like <laughs> you, you, you see there's a transformation and it's a process that needs to happen in the life of a believer. And there needs to be a degree, amen, of grace in this. Some grace in this where you're like, all right, they're, they're, still, they're still peeling off some layers. They still have uh, a few, some vocabulary changes that need to happen. But you know what the encouraging thing is? It's not your responsibility to change them. You don't have to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to sanctify him. Not only did he save us, he's the one that sanctifies us. And he's the one that invites us to keep dipping in to that well of grace. I think that's a good picture of this whole confession thing. Confession, you kind of think of grace like a river that's flowing. And when we blow it, you're like, all right, I need to dip in one more time, get another drink of that grace, dip in, get another drink of that grace, keep on dipping. It doesn't change the fact that that grace has solved it all. It's all, it, it, we're forgiven, we're set free, but it doesn't mean what we don't still have to dip in and take a sip of it on occasion, if not uh, me more often than not. Like this picture that John MacArthur points to with this idea of confession, it says true believers are therefore habitual confessors who demonstrate that God has not only pardoned their sin and is faithfully cleansing them daily from it, but has truly regenerated them, making them new creatures with holy desires that dominate their will. When we confess, we're showing that, listen, there's a change. All of a sudden, in the past, I just kept on going. I didn't even care. But there's a new will that's dominating in my life. There's a new call. There's a, there's a new uh, walking in the light that I've been invited to, and I don't like getting out of the light. That's the funny thing about it. Once you're in the light, you're like, man, I want to stay in the light. I don't want to go back to the fake way of living, trying to put on fronts, lurking in the shadows. Man, I'll tell you, living in the light is a gift. That's what we're invited to. We read it already, but if we walk in the light 
as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son, his son cleanses us from all sin. That's the beautiful light that we're talking about here this morning. That's what we're designed and meant to radiate. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this picture this morning. A little clearer understanding of the light, even though scientists can't seem to figure it out. That you are the light. The radiance that we're invited to. The, the life of, of no more faking, of putting on a front of of real authenticity of knowing and being known the fellowship that you invite us to God I pray that we'd make choices to walk in that light to dip from that never ending river of grace thank you for that invitation this morning I just pray that going into our weeks that we would radiate who you are, that you would flow through us, that this cycle that we see in the text there where you've seen it, you've experienced it, now you proclaim it, that that cycle would actually run full circle in our lives as well. We can only do that in your power and your strength. Thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen, our, our one defense, right? Pray that we go into our weeks and radiate him through us. One way we can do that practically, give some blood on your way out. God bless you. (laughs)